Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 42. Uh, today we've got someone from across the pond in the States. Today we've got Joel. If you'd like to say hello there, Joel. Hi. It's great to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. And for those of you that don't know Joel, um, I have had some pretty big guests on in my time. Uh, but now I'm sure Joel will be very modest about this, but you could argue that he is the world's famous farmer. He has certainly got the biggest Wikipedia of any farmer's page I've seen. Before we get on into another excellent episode of the R2 cast, I would just like to thank the sponsor for the show today, The Scottish Farmer, a weekly magazine highlighting everything you need to know regarding the Scottish agricultural industry, whether it's breaking news, events happening in the sector, market reports, classified ads, or just wholesome stories happening in the industry. The Scottish Farmer's got it for you. Um, Joel is... Uh, a lot involved in organics and such like, which we, we're going to get into as the podcast goes. Um, but Joel, could you give us a bit of background about yourself? Tell us who Joel Salatin is. Uh, tell us your background. Were you born on a farm? Was farming always for you? Sure, sure. Well, great. It's, uh, it's great to be with you, Wallace. Uh, so so um, we came to uh, this farm here when I was four years old and uh, and we're in Virginia, in the Virginia Shenandoah Valley, which is on the Atlantic, you know, on the Atlantic side of the U.S. And, uh, you know, v Virginia was where uh, Jamestown was, you know, the first colony in the, in the U.S. And but that, of course, that was over on the coast. We're on the other end of the state. And um, and so we came in 1961 when I was just four years old. And um, the, the goal was to farm. But um, my mom, my mom was a uh, school teacher. Dad was a tax accountant and um, and he always wanted to have a farm. And we we searched and searched and searched for how can the farm pay a salary and pay the mortgage. And he finally concluded that it could it could either pay the mortgage or pay a salary, but it couldn't do both, uh, at, le at least with our level of understanding at that time. And so uh, dad was quite a visionary. His his father, my grandfather was a charter subscriber to Rodale's Organic Gardening and Farming magazine when it first came out in, you know, like 1949. Uh, uh, that would have been a friend of, uh, for example, Lady Lady Eve Balfour, who, you know, of course, was a was a, a, a British uh, icon in the um, in the farming movement. Um, so anyway, we, you know, we he basically started experimenting, and we. We bought this this gullied rock pile uh, that was the you know it was the armpit of the community. It was the worst farm in the area. That's why it was cheap, and um, and set about to you know how can we how can we you know heal this? How can we bring fertility? And so we started looking at natural at nature's templates and realized that you know it uh, nature's templates are not that complicated. Um, you know one is that all nature has animals everywhere there's no animalist ecology uh animals move they don't stay in the same place they they move around and um fertility is run by basically decomposition car carbon decomposition and nature doesn't plow it doesn't it doesn't till uh it doesn't invert the soil layers and um most of the you know most of the most of the production uh, in nature is consumed pretty close to where it's grown, which, which sounds a lot like local food systems. And so armed with those kind of very simple uh, uh, ideas, we began, uh, we began large-scale composting uh, using, we, we bought a wood chipper, began uh, working in the woodlot, upgrading the woodlot, taking down junk, and began uh, using that for bedding for livestock. We, used, we start, experimented with electric fence, Dad actually invented several, you know, uh, tools at that time, early 60s. That was when electric fence was still very rudimentary. And uh, we started moving the cows around and, uh, you know, from, from paddock to paddock. Dad got a hold of some material from Andre Voisin, who is still the, you know, the godfather of controlled grazing. And we began moving the herds around. And then as I came on at, at 10 years old, I got my first chickens. And by 13, they had grown to where we'd outgrown the old, you know, the backyard chicken house. And, um, and, and dad had, had totally gotten onto this animal movement thing with portable infrastructure, port, you know, portable control, portable housing, portable water. And so 
we adapted, we adapted that to the chickens, started moving the chickens around, moving rabbits around, moving cows around, moving sheep around. And we've just continued to refine that over, over time. So that today um, the farm is, um, we have about 25, 25 salaries uh, that, that are generated from the farm. We service about 8,000 families, uh, perhaps 50, you know, 50 uh, institutional, you know, restaurants, institutional clients, and we ship, uh, we ship nationwide. And, um, and we have, we have about a thousand head of cattle. Uh, we raise about 800 hogs a year, um, you know, 25 to 30,000 broilers. Um, you know, we have about 4,000 laying hens and, um, and a flock of sheep and rabbits, um, I don't know, maybe 80, 80 does, uh, a rabbit. So it's a, you know, it's a significant thing and we have a sawmill. So we mill a lot of uh, lumber and, and, uh, and things that work, work in the woods a lot. And we, you know, so we use a lot of composting, a lot of uh, wood and, and, uh, and we do, and we do this major composting with pigs. So instead of, you know, using, making big windrow compost piles, instead we use pigs to do the, the turning and the aerating. And uh, so we're all about, you know, pigs doing the work. So, you know, it's a, it's a very uh, uh, animal centric, vibrant, direct marketed, local centric uh, type of operation in, in, uh, in the pastured, the pastured livestock space. It's, it's, it's great. You mentioned the, the aeration of the, the compost for the pigs, because I've literally written that down. I think it's one of the most interesting things that I've heard uh, from Polyface Farm. And we had actually mentioned um, the farm Joel is on is Polyface Farm. If you have any form of social media, uh, it's huge on all social media, uh, over 100,000 on Instagram. Facebook's bigger, I think. Uh, yeah, so... If you want to follow what's happening, make sure to do so. You probably wouldn't notice anyone coming over from here, Joel, but <laughs> maybe not quite as big as you guys. But um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You, you called your father a visionary, and and uh, I think a lot of people would say that about their father. But when you really look at what your dad was doing in the sixties, like that—that's insane how early that was. You know, a lot of yeah. these technologies you were talking about are things that are still being, you know, spearheaded now. You know, which is which is quite something. Um, right. You mentioned about nature doesn't till, which which I thought was a really good way to put that. Um, could you just explain what you mean by tilling uh, and uh, to our viewers and why we want to minimize that? You, you mean, you mean uh, well, nature, the, the, the nature's template is pretty is pretty specific. And um, and so, you know, when you when you when you look at nature, nothing in nature really plows. I mean, except I guess pigs, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, pigs plow a little bit, but um, nature is, is, <clears throat> is founded on, on perennials, not annuals. And so whenever you, the, the, the most, the most soil damaging thing that you can do is to plow is, is to, is to till the soil. Now I'm, I'm not saying that that's a sin to do. I'm not yeah. saying that, it, you know, but, but I'm just, I'm just saying, that uh, nature doesn't do it at all. And so we should attempt to be as minimalistic as we possibly can. And as you probably know, right now, some of the most cutting, cutting edge um, regenerative soil systems right now being developed are how do we grow grain? How do we grow crops with no tillage? You know, uh, before now, it's been done primarily with, her with herbicides, you know, um, no-till, no-till agriculture is, is kind of synonymous with, we use herbicides to knock back the weeds in the grass and we can plant, you know, barley or rye or corn or, or something. Uh, whereas now uh, there are more and more um, sophisticated protocols for, um, you know, for rolling, rolling down a smother crop and planting into it uh, so that you, you have a smother, a smother crop that actually mulches and lets you know lets the crop come up through uh one of the we've we've done twice now is the australian uh visionary colin sice who has developed a system called pasture cropping and pasture cropping is where you use livestock to temporarily weaken a sod weaken weaken a, a pasture 
um, long enough to get a, an annual into it, corn, soybeans, barley, wheat, oats, uh, to get an annual into it and get it ahead of the grass. The annual then shades out the grass, the grass mulches and acts as a weed, weed suppressant, and, and, and simply the grass kind of grows uh, in, a retarded, in a retarded state uh, underneath that, that, that fast growing annual. And then when the annual is ready to harvest the, the grain, the sod, as the leaves start to desiccate and fall off of the, uh, off of the grain crop that opens up light into the, you know, through the canopy into the, into the sod again, the sod begins to green up, the grass starts to grow. And so when you combine the crop off, you, you've still got your sod and, and you can actually go in with a grazing animal, um, you know, shortly after harvesting the crop off and it, and it doubles up your production per acre while protecting the soil and, uh, and park, parking the plow in the garage. So it's a, you know, th these, these are really, really cutting edge things. And, um, and I think they're going to proliferate dramatically, you know, as we go forward. I guess one of the, the benefits you didn't mention of, of, reduced plow use is, is, is less carbon getting thrown into the air you know and um, we're not opening up that soil we're we're reducing compaction and uh yeah hopefully all in all uh it's like it's a win-win when you put it that way really like i mean there's the obvious win to plowing you know but um the when you're really looking at it from a, a sustainability and, and furthermore regenerative perspective it's it's, right. it's a win and um, you mentioned earlier on joel i just sort of missed what the reason was you mentioned you would chip was that for bedding did you say no. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, there are times, as you know, Wallace, there are times when, when you want to bring animals into shelter, uh, you know, it may be winter, uh, snow, it may be, <clears throat> it may be extremely wet where the livestock would, you know, would what we call pug up, you know, pug the, pug the ground. Um, so, you know, there, there are absolutely times to house animals and, uh, normally, when we think of housing animals, we think of either uh, concrete that we scrape every day, uh, or you think of some sort of a, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a slatted floor, you know, like like in piggeries, you know, where the manure goes through into a slurry uh, system. Um, but uh, it, what we do every every time, whether it's chickens, rabbits, pigs, cows, sheep, whatever it is, if when, when we house those animals, for us, it's winter, uh, about, you know, about 100 days in the winter, we get here, we get about about um, two thirds of a meter of snow a, a winter. So, um, so we, we, we have the animals inside for about 100 days a, a year in the winter, cold, cold snow, that sort of thing. And, um, and so we use deep bedding. Um, so here's the thing in the winter, not only is the soil extremely fragile, it's damp, it, it's, it's, not, it's not alive, it's, uh, it's kind of dormant. And so it definitely does not want a bunch of uh, movement and impaction during the wintertime. And of course, those animals, you know, um, they're, they're still pooping and peeing, you know, uh, in the winter, they don't, they don't stop, you know. And so here you have all this this uh, fertility going on on dormant soil that can't metabolize it, you know, when the soil is sleeping, and and so uh, all that all that um, that nutrient either goes into the aquifer, you know, through the soil into an aquifer, or if it's dry, I mean, if the weather's dry, it it, it vaporizes into the air, and we all know what that smells like. Go by any you know confinement house you know what that smells like you're smelling you know, you're smelling the nitrogen the ammonia you know going off in the air so what we do is we use what we call a carbonaceous diaper uh so you know this can be any kind of carbon it can be wood chips sawdust leaves uh straw corn fodder uh, uh corn ground up corn cobs leaves you know anything that's brown and and we we put that down and let that build up and, and, and it'll build up, you know, uh, four feet, deep, four feet deep in some cases, uh, but, but extremely, uh, but that, that deep bedding, we call it the carbonaceous diaper. And that, that locks up these, the manure and the urine in, um, you know, in, in a carbon, a carbon sponge. 
And um, in the case of the, you know, the, the pigs and the chickens, where they're all, they're turning it, it's actually composting, you know, as they, as they add to it. For the cows, where they're not turning it, it simply beds up and it ferments. They're tromping out the oxygen and it ferments. We add corn to that. The corn ferments in that, in that deep bedding pack. When the cows come out in the spring and begin grazing again, we put in pigs and the pigs then seek the fermented corn and, and, and uh, churn it up, adding oxygen and converting, converting that whole pack from anaerobic to aerobic compost. We haven't had to use any petroleum, no machinery, no time, no labor. The pigs love it. You know, it's hog heaven for the pigs. And, um, and it, it fully, you know, it fully respects and honors the pigness of the pigs, lets them now not just be pork chops and bacon. They're actually co-laborers in this great land healing uh, ministry. And when the pigs are done with the aeration the and, it, and it composts and smells like, you know, smells like, uh, like, like, you know, forest, forest soil, then, um, then we spread that out on, on, on the fields and that closes our fertility, you know, our, our, our fertilizer loop. No, it's, I mean, making use of natural processes for our gain, for everything's gain, has got to make sense. I mean, the saying is literally a pig and shit. Yeah. And you're, you're going with that. You're, you're using that, which is brilliant to hear just everything come in at different parts. It's, it's so, it's refreshing actually, you know, um, I kind of want to get into the, the stock you've got, uh, Joel, as well. Uh, did you say a thousand cattle? What breed is that? Is that just everything or is that? Yeah, we're, we're not we're not real breed specific, although right now I will tell you that our, our bulls um, we're, we're using right now South Pole bulls. That's a that's a fairly new breed in the United States, South Pole. It's a composite breed from about four different, you know, different uh, uh, lines that's been developed over the last 40 years by a guy named Teddy Gentry, who is one of the singers for um, uh, the, the country music group, Alabama. And, really? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And he's basically uh, um, invested his fortune in trying to develop a, a grass, a, a forage based breed of, of animal. They're a little, they're small, um, uh, thin legged and, and wide, you know, wide bodied. They got, um, we like, we like to call them barrel on toothpicks and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and that's what you want in grass finishing. When you're the industry, the industry has moved our, our cow size to, uh, to a huge size. I mean, uh, 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 uh let's see, I've got to think about kilograms here. Uh, so, so most, you know, most cows now in the U.S. are running probably um, 700 kilos. Yeah, imagine that. Yeah. Okay, but um, but what we want in grass finishing, we want more like um, a 450 kilo cow, much much smaller, and the reason is because the bigger the animal, the the more uh, the more uh, just energy it takes per kilo to maintain it's like a it's like a like a steam engine you know yeah, a steam yeah. locomotive and it simply takes way more per you know per kilo to keep that animal going and so um uh the, the reason these animals have gotten big is not because they're actually functional on the farm or because they're healthier or taste better or you know anything like that the reason they've gotten big is because the industry the processing industry, um, which, you know, which fabricates and takes that, takes that animal and turns it into, you know, T-bone steaks and ribeyes and ground beef. Um, that is actually more efficient on a big carcass than a small carcass, because if you're, if you're going to cut out ribeye steaks, it's a lot better to cut out 14 from a carcass than 12 from a carcass. You know, uh, it, 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 it's like the difference between uh, between Duplos and Legos. You know, you, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you've got a bigger piece. And so what's happened is that the pro the processing end of the industry has driven now the genetic end. But 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 the but the efficiency to get maximum to maximize efficiency on the processing end actually makes an animal that's less vital. Uh, that's less resilient 
that is more prone to you know disease problems and actually more inefficient on the farmer's end but uh but you know like so many things um farmers farmers tend to go with the the diktats <laughs> of the you know of the other end and they've kind of they kind of hurt themselves genetically they're, they're they're pushed in that direction from a financial incentivization aren't they i mean they're at the end yeah. of the day it's business and sometimes you've got to push that way and it's it's again i've said the word refreshing before to look at the sort of efficiency the quality that that's sort of not pushing i mean the belgian blue is the always the one that, that jumps to mind it just looks like an actual tractor it doesn't, doesn't appeal to me personally but um yeah it, it's good to hear what, what well, age the thing the thing about? yeah the, the thing the thing is um you know, we have these kind of two two ideas in tension. One is resilience, and one is efficiency. And I mean, we all want to be efficient, but at the end of the day, if you're not if you're not resilient first, you don't have anything to be efficient about. <laughs> so, yep. so resiliency has to be more important than efficiency. Once you have resiliency, then you want to be as efficient as possible. Yes. No. Absolutely. Um, what, what age are, are you killing the cattle? Yeah, so we're we're normally processing somewhere between twenty eight and thirty four months. Yeah, so a, a, a year on top of a sort of intense process, uh, maybe even a yeah. year and a half. Yeah, that's right. No, they, they, yeah. they 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 grow a little. They grow a little slower, um, but uh, but that that allows the amino acids to actually become more complex. The older the older an animal gets. The more complex the amino acids. You know, we're all familiar with complex and simple sugars. We all know that complex sugars are better than simple sugars. Mm -hmm. and, and the same thing is true with amino acids. The more complex amino acids are better for us than the simple amino acids. And so our fixation, our fixation in the livestock industry in, in, in growing them faster and uh, faster and then, and then slaughtering uh, faster, butchering faster, uh, er, earlier, you know, at, at earlier pubescence, um, it doesn't allow the sophisticated amino acid complex to actually, um, you know, to actually come to its its full whatever fruition. So then what happens is our, my, our microbiome, our nutritional needs then get deprived of the of the level of complexity that that our microbiome wants um you know in this in this simplicity just like it, it gets deprived of of polysaccharides when we feed it high fructose corn syrup yeah yeah it's oh it's i really enjoyed listening to it i learned so much as this goes i'm probably looking like i'm not understanding it and the reason for that is i am not uh no no the amino acid stuff was maybe a bit over my head but um really really interesting stuff i'm, I'm focusing in on sort of each livestock at the minute you said you had 800 hogs um i'm guessing that's pigs in the states uh yeah yeah but pigs again is that just a variation of breeds uh playing their role in the system as aerators uh, yeah. yeah yeah uh we're look we're not real breed specific uh we're much more phenotype phenotype specific yep. so what we've learned what we've at least our experience is that every breed has um uh, every breed has functional and dysfunctional phenotypes or or, or genetics mm -hmm. and so among so there, there is actually more uh, more variety, let's say from the top to the bottom within a breed than there is from you know from breed to breed. So what we're looking so our 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 pig breeds are um, you know are all over the place, and essentially we're looking for a 1950s phenotype. We call it the torpedo the torpedo body type okay. where. Uh, we don't want this this hyped up um, uh, ec extra long, extra lean, uh, extra wide rear end on a hog. Uh, those hogs that are bred like that, those whatever they are, they're, they're you know, uh, IPC hogs or I don't know what they're called. But anyway, um, they're, they're the ones you see at all the shows. And when we put those out on pasture, uh, they actually fall apart. They simply don't have enough. Uh, fat and enough, um, uh, uh, you know, 
kinetic kinetic functionality. Uh, they actually walk like they like they hurt, like they have arthritis, and um, and they just don't function for us. So we're looking we're looking for what we call state of the art 1950s genetics, and those are the pigs that do really really well. Well, th those other ones you're talking about are built for intensity. Yeah, they're they're built for that intense, fully grain fed. Yes, uh, yes. Diet. And and it's it's like anything. If something's built for something, you put it on something else, it doesn't work. It'd be like me on a vegan diet, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's exactly yeah. right. Mm -hmm. Are they are they for sausages, bacon, everything? Uh, Every everything. So <laughs> we we got in we got into pigs uh, years and years ago to do our composting, to do our compost turning. Uh, that's why we got into pigs, but they, they tasted so good. Our customers wanted more. And so, so we began raising them and out outside. And so what we, what we do is we raise them in groups of 35 to 50 in a group and give them, uh, again, I'm going to be acres. So we give them about a half an acre, which would be uh, a, a quarter of a hectare. Just under a quarter of a hectare, yeah. Yeah, about a quarter of a hectare uh, every five to 12 days. And we move them every five to 12 days. And, and mainly we don't run those in the real nice, in the real nice pastures because pigs will, they definitely make div, divots in a pasture. So we raise them what we call out on the edges. So in, in the woods edges, um, you know, maybe some, some scruffy, scruffy, brushy uh, land. Um, but, but, you know, not our, not our best land. And, uh, and we have those in these, in these paddocks and the pigs really, um, you know, really exercise that ecology and uh, and move actually move the vegetation. We, we've gone into places that were just thick with you know brambles and honeysuckle and 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 thorns, and in you know and in six years it's just beautiful silvo pasture. Uh, you know where the pigs have, have you know worked it. Our, so the the great you're throwing corn into the into the compost that the pigs then take. Is that the only thing on top of pasture base that they're eating? So it's all pasture, and then that's the only corn. Are you also? Oh no, no, they no, they get their their pigs are omnivores. They get a yeah, they no, get a not. they get a ration. Yeah, they get it now. When they're when they're doing the when they're doing the pigger rating, uh, the compost pigger rating, they don't get any feed at all because they have the fermented corn uh, in there, and um, and so they have to they have to work for supper uh, while they're doing <laughs> that. And, and and we watch them. Obviously, we we don't make them. We don't make them eat every single kernel. Uh, you, you just can't, you know, I mean, they, they would get skinny. So, um, you know, so we lose, uh, we, we, we lose about 10% probably of the corn in there, but when we spread the compost, then we run the chickens, uh, the egg mobiles, we call them, the, the, they're portable hen houses. We run that behind where we spread. So the chickens can salvage out the last of the corn pieces that the pigs missed. And they, I'm, my knowledge of pigs is quite minimal. What age are you, what age do they go to slaughter? Is that like sort of 150 days or something like that? Or is it? Uh, we, yeah. So we, we get the pigs at uh, eight to 10 weeks and then we keep yep. them for, for another six months. So there's somewhere, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of eight, eight to nine months when we, when we go to slaughter. Now we, we do take them up bigger than normal. Most, most pigs, let's see, kilos. Uh, 250 pounds would be about be 110 something 100, like that. 100, yeah, 110 yeah. kilos. All right, so we take we take them up to uh, 300 pounds to about 140 kilos, and, and so so we take the pigs up a little bigger, and um, and a bigger pig is more efficient at metabolizing grass than a small pig, and so by taking them up into a bigger size, we actually leverage the pasture that that we have so that um so that instead of losing uh feed conversion later we're actually we're actually converting more green material which makes a better a much better tasting pig our our, our pork is actually rose colored it's not white you don't want white pork white white indicates anemia iron deficiency and so our pork is actually rose colored um and that indicates iron and and carotenes. It's a it's a higher nutritional profile. Yeah, a higher carotenoid content. Yeah, no, that's 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 interesting. That is actually because when you think when you think pork, you think uh, that whitey, pink, uh, absolute best meat. You don't think rose. Uh, no, that that's good. Um, sheep. How many sheep do you have? Sorry, Joe. 
Yeah, uh, our sheep is our, our our grandson's project. He's 16 right. years old, and uh, so he's got a he's had sheep since he was about 11, and uh, he's up to about um, 35 ewes now, I think. So when they all lamb, they, they should all lamb in about the next month, and um, and when they when they lamb, he'll be up to you know maybe uh, 65, 70, maybe even 80. Um, he's had real good success and a lot, lot of twins and, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a small flock of hair sheep. It's a, a, a small, did you say, did you say wool sheep there? Did you, did you say it was wool sheep? Hey, Joe. Uh, no, they're, they're oh. hair sheep. Hair oh, sheep. sorry. Got you. Mm -hmm. Got you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, small sheep project, you started with the chicken project, which takes me on to the next part. Um, I hope you've kicked your feet up and got comfy and enjoying another fantastic episode of the R2 cast with another really interesting guest. I would just like to quickly take another second to plug the sponsors of the show today, The Scottish Farmer, and I would strongly advise you to go out and pick one up this week and see even more of the fantastic people that are in our industry. Your, was it 30,000 broilers and 4,000 layers? Yes. A, no, uh -huh. a notable enterprise now, just for those of you listening, uh, layers are egg producing hens, broilers are meat. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, got to clear that part up first. Um, how, how, how long does it take to get to that size? It's, it's so many birds, but you don't see a smaller than that size bird population because it needs to be that big. Um, and also, what age are you killing the, the broilers at? Yeah, the, the, the broilers, the meat birds, we dress at either seven, eight, or nine weeks, depending on, depending on our customer and the weight we want them. Uh, and, and so, so we, we get a new batch roughly every three, every three weeks, and we spread that out over a three-week processing window uh, so we don't have to start a new batch every single week. Um, I know that's kind of un, unusual in the industry, but, uh, but, you know, we're, we're a small operation. And so we want to amalgamate, we want to amalgamate our, our chick time, you know, and, and not have to start all the time. Um, you know, the, the, the beauty of our, of our broiler enterprise, especially is, you know, if you, if you want to raise chickens for the industry, it takes a pretty substantial number and investment just, just to start, you know, to put in a house, and and uh, and get all that started. Whereas what we have are these little, uh, they're roughly uh, three meter by four meter by uh, two feet, you know, two thirds of a meter high little boxes, floorless boxes that we that are very very lightweight, and with a very simple dolly, uh, we can move those across the pasture. There's no floor in them. We put about 75 chickens in each one. We move them every single morning so they get a totally fresh spot of pasture, fresh bugs, worms, all that, you know, each day. Of course, they also get a, get a feeder like the pigs do. And um, so every day they get a totally fresh area to be in that they haven't, you know, been on. Uh, we only touch a given square foot with them only one day per year. So it's one day on and a year rest before they come back to that same spot. And, um, and with our, our little system, uh, one person with using a little, a little dolly, one person can move 4,500 chickens in 60 minutes without starting an engine. And, uh, and, and so those, th those little, those little um, uh, shelters protect them from aerial predators, ground predators, and the weather. Because remember, they're, they're going out, they're going out on pasture at, you know, at two weeks old. So they're little, you know, little itty bitty chicks and they'd be very vulnerable to even, you know, starlings and crows would, would even uh, pick them up. So they're, they're extremely vulnerable to predators. And uh, so uh, the beauty of this, of this I system is that you can, you can scale it up over time um, because the infrastructure is, um, is, is modular. Uh, you, you don't you don't have to start with this great great big thing. You can start with this little one, and if you like it, you can build another one. If you like it, you can build. We have two hundred, so we we have we have enough capacity, you know, to house fifteen thousand chickens at once. But they're in two hundred modular you know modular field shelters, and um, 
And so that, that allows you to grow, you know, to scale by duplication, not centralization. And I like that idea. I'd quite like to see a photo of that just to try and visualize it. Um, how, how many eggs are you looking for out of a bird in let's say a year period? Well, uh, so, I mean, we just talked about the broilers. So the eggs, the egg layers, uh, they're in a different situation. They're in a, they're right. in either egg mobiles, which are totally portable houses that follow the cows and the chickens scratch through the cow patties and spread out the cow patties and, and sanitize them from, you know, bugs and worms and, and parasites. And then the other one is a millennium feather net, which is a, which is a, an A-frame a field shelter for a thousand birds that we move every about three or four days with electric netting, electric poultry netting around it. And, and we move it across the field. So one is more land extensive, one is more land intensive. But yeah, out of those 4,000 uh, 4, layers, uh, if, if we say that we average a rolling, a rolling annual flock average of 50% lay, um, then, you know, we're, we're getting, uh, uh, you know, right at what, 100 and, 160 dozen, um, 160 dozen per day uh times 365 is you know whatever that is uh it's it, it's it's a lot of eggs a lot of eggs yeah i can't work that one out my head's normally quite good but that's a lot that's a bit too big um and and how for, are, are eggs sold all in the very local area because eggs don't transport well i don't think um right right the, the egg, yeah uh, we don't we don't <laughs> we don't ship the eggs uh no, i we do i mean yeah, I mean, we, we do we do deliver eggs, obviously, to our so we, we have a we have a uh, several thousand families in the urban sector uh, with about 32, I don't know, 32 um, what we call neighborhood drop points. So this is that they 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 purchase on the Internet and then we go at an appointed time. We service these uh, folks monthly. So we go once a month with um you know into these into these urban drop points everybody meets us there gets their stuff and um and so it 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 makes it easy for they they can order from our full inventory so our full inventory is available to them as opposed to like a box scheme you know a a a box scheme you know you have to take what's in the box so our folks can cherry pick they have complete freedom of choice for whatever's in our inventory, and then then we deliver it into their neighborhood, and they just come at the appointed time and, and pick it up. And we service those accounts. Uh, we service those, you know, monthly. So um, so obviously we take eggs. You know, uh, we we deliver eggs uh, with us when we go, and we service we service a lot of restaurants as well. And um, we we have numerous restaurants uh, that take eggs, and then we also service a couple of um, a couple of you know boutique you know, boutique grocery stores yeah. um, that take, that take eggs as well. The fancy ones. <laughs> right. Right. Um, now I've went through every other animal, so I, I have to involve and I've left it till last because I'm quite interested in it. Rabbits for meat, for pelt, for what, what are you, or for everything? Yeah. 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 For meat, rabbits yeah. for meat. Mm -hmm. Are they, are they, are they involved in the system? Do they have a job or uh, not? <laughs> Well, um, you know, uh, their initially their job, their job was that our son, Daniel, when he was eight, wanted a farm enterprise that was his own. And he took an interest in rabbits that I, I, I think I like to raise rabbits. Well, I wasn't raising rabbits. The farm didn't have rabbits. So that was something that he could do, uh, entre you know, entrepreneurially uh, as a child that, that was autonomous. Um that was his. And so initially the, the rabbits offered a completely autonomous, uh, child-friendly, um, entrepreneurial opportunity for him. Um, and, and, and so, you know, they are a, um, you know, they're, they're just another enterprise. Now the rabbits then are housed, um, at, at eye level, and, and their manure and everything drops onto the floor and there's chickens underneath them. So chickens then scratch through what the rabbits drop with carbon and aerate it and keep it composting so there's no odor in the, in the rabbitry. And that's fundamental because rabbits, rabbits are a little bit like pigs. They're, they're actually quite fastidious and they, they choose a, um, 
they choose a pee spot. And so they go to that and they, they pee there. And so what happens then is over time, you get this, this soaked uh, area that just stinks to high heaven because it's all wet and, and ammonia and all that. So the chickens being underneath the rabbits, scratching around the, the carbon, um, uh, keep all that, that urine um, uh, driving a compost uh, on the bedding and that eliminates any odors, keeps the rabbits healthier because they're not, you know, getting that ammonia vapors up through them. And it, it grows a lot of bugs and worms and things for the chickens to enjoy. So it's a very, uh, a very synergistic uh, kind of thing. And I guess, I mean, famous saying breeding like rabbits, you know, uh, is, is going from very few rabbits to a lot of rabbits, something you can do pretty quickly. I mean, what, what's the gestation of a rabbit? I honest, I don't know that. Maybe you don't either. Yeah, well, um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in, in general, um, we, we like to see a doe have four, four, four litters a year. Now that's, that's, that's less than the industry. The, in, the industry often pushes them to like seven litters a year. You know, it, it's, it's less than a month. Um, but we've just, again, that by backing off a little bit and letting the dough work, not work quite as hard, she's healthier, she lasts longer. And, um, and we can still make real good with uh, four, you know, four litters a year, which if you average seven, if you average seven bunnies per litter, uh, four times seven is 28. So, uh, you know, if, if you want to actually grow protein, there is nothing I know that will produce as many pounds of protein per square foot as as rabbits. I think the only thing that's comparable would be insects, uh, which uh, yes, you yeah, probably I'm finger sure, that I'm, pie. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sure sure you're right about that. I expect grasshoppers and mealyworms would be you know just a little bit better, uh, but but I kind of like rabbit meat better than grasshoppers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that one. But surely, surely, one of your grandkids, by the sound of the the, the Salatin uh, history, will come around and they'll be on crickets soon enough. Um, crickets, crickets will turn. This is a fact. I did I did this in my masters. Crickets will turn one kilo of of food into one point one kilo, like of edible for us. And I think that's just insane. But anyway, it's, yeah, um, that is. Yeah. Yeah, so so in a couple of years, Polyface Farm will, will be doing uh, will be doing crickets and mealworms and all that as well, and then you'll be integrating yeah. that into the ration for everything, and then it'll all yeah, can't yeah. wait to see it. Can't wait to see it. Um, <laughs> yeah, listen, I I absolutely love talking about the processes and the livestock and how they all have a job. You know, I absolutely love that. I think it's excellent, and it's great to see so many family members getting involved as well. Um, but you mentioned you had 25 salaries, Joel. Is that just people working on the ground? Is that management? Is that everything? Well, it's, it's everything. So, that, I mean, that, include, that includes, um, you know, uh, delivery, delivery truck, you know, truck delivery drivers. It includes uh, sales, you know, salespeople making uh, phone calls, accountants, you know, the financial end of it, management. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's everything. Uh, probably, you know, of those 25, probably um uh 15 are active you know day-to-day day-to-day production but you know we have a full-time mechanic we have a full-time uh maintenance technician who you know fixes uh, you know when 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 a when a when a piece of roofing starts flapping you know somebody's got to get up there and, and fix that uh so you know there's there's on a farm as you know there's always stuff to fix and and repair and, you know, fences to fix and gates to build and, you know, those sorts of things. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's not a backyard operation. I failed to mention, you know, we also raise about 1500 turkeys a year. So, um, you know, here, the, 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 the turkey market is primarily Thanksgiving uh, here. So we, we do, we do some Thanksgiving turkeys as well. Is, is, is the turkey market for Christmas big in the States or not? Uh, yes, some, yeah. some, but it's, it's primarily Thanksgiving and then secondarily Christmas. Yes. It's called Turkey Day, isn't it? Thanksgiving. Yes. Thanksgiving yeah, yeah, yeah. is called Turkey Day. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, it, we, yeah. we, don't, we don't do Thanksgiving here at all. Um, it's, it's, it's not a thing that happens at this side of the water at all. Yes. Um, on, on the sawmill side of things, are you selling like um, 
bespoke timber or are you aiming for tables or are you just selling wood as a uh, fuel? Uh -huh. uh, well, we'll, we'll sell anything. We'll sell anything that we can. Uh, you know, anything that, uh, keep the, keep the taxes paid. Um, yeah. so, so we, we sell, I mean, obviously much of the lumber that we mill is for our own projects because we have, you know, shelters, uh, feather nets, gobbledygoes, eggmobiles, you know, all sorts of corrals, uh, gate, you know, all sorts of, you know, feed mangers, all sorts of things, buildings and things that, that we build. But we also sell uh, into the neighborhood if somebody wants, you know, the, the beauty of having the sawmill is that we can custom cut, we can <laughs> custom cut dimensions. So for example, if somebody wants to replace the deck on a hay wagon, for example, uh, you can't go down to the hardware store and buy, you know, a, um, a three inch by 10 inch timber, you know, you, you can't do it. it. It can't be done. And so, but they can come over here and, and, and we can, and we can custom cut uh, any dimension lumber that, that they want. So we can make, you know, fireplace, anything from fireplace mantles to uh, you know, to, to cabinetry, uh, cabinetry dimensions to, you know, raw uh, like a hay wagon deck. And um, so you know, most of what we do is utility, utility material, but we definitely have, you know, we have some black walnut and cherry that we cut into dimension and sell that at a, at a nice price uh, for, you know, for, for artisanal craft, you know, cabinet makers, table furniture type craft people that are looking for, you know, specialty uh, wood. There, there are a few things probably my favorite wood in the world is, is black walnut. Uh, black walnut wood is just, Walnut is just uh, just a, a gorgeous, beautiful uh, wood. But cherry, cherry is very good too. And uh, of course, there's, there's a lot of stuff built out of oak and oak and poplar and things like that. So, you know, we we sell we sell some, and we use a lot ourselves. I just I just googled black walnut as you said it there. It's gorgeous. It's lovely. Yeah. Um, oh, it is. it is. I bet they pay, I bet they pay, pay a pretty well. It'll be a pretty cent in the states for that. Um, yeah. Uh, yes. So the, one thing I love about talking to Americans and Australians is you have the best nicknames for things. Gobbledygoes has got to be the highlight of this podcast. <laughs> that's yeah. a better. Yeah. Um, yeah. The go gobbledygo. <laughs> yeah, that's that's for turkeys. Yeah. I, well, yeah. I, I guess. I, I guess that I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Um, yeah. Look, it's it's a uh, it's class to chat about the farm side of things. I've got a few few other questions. Um, Joel, well, I've got you. Uh, as I do with every podcast uh, guest I have on, um, I look them up. Some people harder than others. You were certainly not difficult to find anything about yourself. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot on there, um, and I clicked clicked through and I clicked on awards, and uh, I saw you were a Heinz Award winner. Now Heinz is a, a, a food, probably one of the only food brands that even people that have nothing to do with farming are aware of. Um, could you tell us what that award was for and how that came about? Yeah, that, that award was for, uh, for sustainable agriculture. Uh, that was several years ago. And, um, and the, the Heinz family, which, you know, is famous for ketchup. Um, yeah. they, 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 be, they began this, this um, you know, this kind of award program to honor uh, people in, you know, in, in agriculture, but other areas as well who are devoted, uh, you know, leading, uh, innovating in the, in, in sustainability. And, uh, so yeah, that we, we, we got nom. I, I don't know who nominated us. Somebody obviously <laughs> nominated us and, and, uh, it went through the pipeline. We, we didn't know about it until we got a phone call and said, you know, can you come to this, this, uh, ceremony and get an award, you know? And we said, well, I guess, I guess we can figure out how to get there, you know? And so, yeah, that was, that was pretty neat. It'd be rude not to. It, it wasn't down to the fifty-seven varieties of uh, livestock you have, though. <laughs> the, no, um, no. I just, I just realised there. I, I focused heavily on the livestock. It's all around pasture-based and that sort of thing. Um, do you, do you grow your own crops as well to bring in the grain, or are you bringing that grain in from somewhere else? We are we are bringing the grain in from um, from nearby local farmers. It's all GMO free, so non genetically modified right. organisms. And we use a we use a local mill 
uh, that we actually helped to, to get started about, well, when GMOs came in, we helped this family uh, take an old 1950s mill and, and actually, you know, rehab it and start in uh, so that this mill actually takes in no GMO material. So nobody can, you know, push the wrong button or whatever. And, uh, and so, uh, so we, it, it, all, all of our grain comes from, from uh, local farmers here. And we're excited to be able to, to ensure that that much acreage is GMO free. It's kind of, it's kind of fun. No, it's good. And, and are you growing, are you growing any grass that hasn't been grazed? Do you cut any for silage, hay, haylage? That sort oh of thing? yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, we, yeah. we make all of our, we make all of our own hay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We we've, we've dabbled a little bit with grass silage in the past. Uh, not much, but, um, but, but mainly, yeah, we, we do, we do make our own hay. Yeah. We don't, we don't buy hay and we don't sell hay. You know, we, um, we, we just make, we make all our own. Mm-hmm. I take it. I take it. You'll get pretty long, warm, dry summers. Uh, is that right? Or well, I mean, they, they. I mean, obviously, you know, what's what's normal? Uh, our our normal rainfall is thirty one inches, which is what uh, 800, 800 uh, yeah. mil, uh, roughly. Um, and but you know, we have droughts like everybody else, and uh, so you know, we we have wet summers and and dry summers, and. Um, but uh, certainly our summers are hotter than, than Britain, uh, you know, and, 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 and much, you know, much drier uh, in that yeah. respect, but certainly, certainly not as dry as, as, you know, as, as, as out West, you know, Oklahoma and, and um, you know, Nevada, Utah. Uh, I mean, those, those places are, are really dry, but it's definitely not a Mediterranean Mediterranean yeah. climate. Like, like Spain or California where you have a wet season and a dry season. It's more, you know, it's more uh, metered uh, throughout the season. No, that, that was, that was sort of the question was about, I mean, we here in Southwest Scotland are looking at, and someone will be out here saying I'm wrong anywhere between 900 and a thousand mils. So it's not far off that. I thought it would be a bit less than that, to be honest. Um, away from farming, you are a speaker, a writer, everything. You've done it all. Um, written a few books were they just all based around um production techniques and such like that joel or was there any maybe well, <laughs> novels in there <laughs> no well you know what i i um no there aren't any novels yet but i did start one a couple of years ago and uh, i just got bogged down and i i i find fiction fiction's hard i mean you have to you have to you're, you have to imagine something you know uh you know when i'm writing nonfiction, i'm just basically you know, telling my story, telling, you know, information. So, you know, I've, ri- I've written 15 books and, um, and most of them are about, you know, about production, regenerative agriculture, you know, techniques, things that we've, we've done um, in the different uh, things, but, but several of them are more philosophical, like, uh, like folks, this ain't normal is about how, uh, how abnormal our culture is, you know, historically, where, you know, we're eating unpronounceable food and, and people don't have any connection to their food and, and children don't have chores anymore. Um, you know, those kinds of things. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, I call my soul book, the sheer ecstasy of being a lunatic farmer, you know, uh, that, that, that's a fun book, a lot of humor in that, but it's essentially, um, trying to explain the the difference, uh, between us and mainline agriculture, uh, marvelous pigness of pigs is a, basically um environmental ethics for the religious right uh for the faith community and um so yeah there have been there have been um there have been, they've been all over but certainly the the theme you know my um you know my, my niche my theme is certainly you know farming and food and you know how do we do this in a way that actually um that actually heals uh, rather than hurts and I, I want to have to ask about because i think the name is brilliant Everything I want to do is illegal. <laughs> What's that about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, that, that's one. Um, so that's one that a lot of people don't realize how prejudicial uh, food laws are, food regulations. They're, they're extremely prejudicial to small operations. In other words, it's much easier to comply and get licenses if you're big than if you're small. So they're extremely prejudicial um, regulations, and 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 I think that uh, that 
if if a law is easier to comply with if you're big than if you're small, it's an inherently incorrect law. And so I know the same thing is true in Great Britain because before COVID, I I had been in, uh, in, in I mean I know you're in Scotland, uh, in, in in the greater you know uh, uh, greater Britain. Uh, um, the I, I know I know that this this is a a common issue because people talked about it to me just like we do in the states where these small community abattoirs um, are are finding it more and more difficult to comply with these very um, uh, difficult food regulations that at the end of the day don't have anything to do with about the quality of the food but they have everything to do about paperwork checking boxes and, uh, and infrastructure. And, um, and so everything I want to do is illegal. Just explain, explain. We've had numerous run-ins with the bureaucracy. Um, some, some, you know, we have been more tense than others. And there are a lot of things that we would like to do here that we, you know, that, that we can't, we, we would love to be able to, um, you know, to, to, to milk a cow and sell raw milk to a neighbor. We would love to be able to, um, you know, make ice cream and sell to a neighbor. We'd like to, we'd like to be able to make our own, uh, uh, you know, smoked sausage here on the farm and sell that to a neighbor. But, you know, uh, smoking sausage is considered manufacturing and manufacturing is, is not allowed in agricultural zones. So that's, that's not a food safety issue. That's a zoning issue. And, and, and so, you know, you just, you just run into all these things where a person, where a, especially a small operation, their hands are tied to do a lot of innovative, creative things. Um, I mean, in, including building a, you know, building a vacation cottage, maybe, maybe people want to come out and spend a week at your farm, you know, well, how easy is it to get a license uh, to, to be able to, you know, build a, a cottage, a vacation cottage cottage on your farm you've got you know zoning you've got building inspection you got all these things and and they're all they're all much more difficult when you're small than when you're large yeah not yeah. easy at all is the answer <laughs> how easy is that uh, yeah right. and, and yes. interesting. yeah it's interesting you mentioned the sort of slaughterhouse abattoir situation over here flying down at an alarming rate and it's, it's all an economies of scale thing like you're saying yeah um, right just one thing, you, you're in some ways, the well, maybe not the father of this stuff, Joel, but it's certainly when we hear the word regenerative agriculture, uh, your name is certainly one in that discussion. Um, could you tell us what regenerative agriculture is? And just before you do, I've got a little adage that I've heard before. Uh, I heard someone say that sustainable a sustainable relationship is coming home, having your dinner, getting on with your partner, going to sleep and not arguing. A regenerative relationship is coming home with some flowers, a lovely meal, candlelit dinner, whatever happens before you go to sleep, and then waking up in the morning. So that's my sort of comedy version of what regenerative <laughs> agriculture is. But what actually it, is regenerative agriculture? Yeah, agriculture? It, it, in, a, in other in other words, re regenerative agriculture is sustainable agriculture on steroids. Yes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> pretty so, much. So yeah. So yeah, in my in in my, there's a couple aspects to it. Um, one for me is that um, that regenerative agriculture needs to leave the commons needs to leave more equity in the commons than was there before you started. The commons is air, soil, water, uh, even cultural equity, um, and so as a result of us being here, as a result of our farming. Uh, there should be more commons, not less commons. And if you study the history of agriculture uh, through, you know, throughout history, um, generally agriculture depletes the commons. Mm -hmm. you, you know, there's there's less soil, um, less water, you know, uh, those sorts of things. So it, it needs to increase the commons. Number two, uh, it needs to have uh, it needs to have relational succession. And so. Um, you know, my real quick answer is regenerative agriculture creates a place that is attractive to the next generation. Um, you know, it, a regenerative farm should be a place that's supporting two salaries from two different generations to ensure that there is successional, uh, you know, successional regeneration. 
And that's an aspect that too often is not discussed. We, we tend to think about the about the the physical ecology of the soil, the plants and the animals, but we don't think about the the relational ecology of the you know of the personnel. And so uh, you know that's a critical aspect. Which is important. It's not just doing well now. We've got to continue that, you know. Um and yeah, no, absolutely. Listen, it's been great, uh, Joel. I mean, I think when I first uh, reached out to an uh, Instagram page with 120,000 followers, I thought I wouldn't get through, uh, but I managed to email you and you responded within about six hours, which was a bit mental. Um, yeah. So th thank you. Thank you for that. But two things I ask everyone before we finish every podcast is one, where do you see yourself in five years? And two, if you had any tips for folk coming into agriculture, what would they be? Uh, good, good questions. They're, they're good questions. In five years, um, uh, well, if I'm still, I'm still uh, healthy and living, I, I hope to be <laughs> doing exactly what I'm, what I'm doing now. And, uh, and of course, hopefully we'll have, you know, some new, new collaborators and, uh, and, 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 and deeper relationships and friendships along the way. So um, that, that's, that's what I hope for in the future. Uh, as far as the best advice for somebody coming into uh, agriculture, um, I, I think the, the most important thing that I can say is to, to stay with it. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm quick to tell people I'm not smarter or better or more hardworking than, than anybody else. One of the reasons we've been successful is because we were just too stubborn to quit. You know, it, it hasn't been easy, um, especially in those early days. And, and most people get discouraged. Uh, and so, um, so you know, it, the the night is darkest before the dawn. And if you can if you can push through, if you can push through the frustration and the whatever the lack of knowledge, the the ignorance, you know, all those things. If you can push through that and just stay with it, uh, you will become a master. You will find you will find uh, techniques and um, and and just and and goodness and relationships uh, help from friends. You know, uh, new new people to come alongside, and if you just stay with it long enough. So um, so you know, persistence is probably the most you know the most important element here. Uh, because nothing new, nothing new is easy. And, um, and especially if you go against the grain, you know, everybody will tell you you're crazy and it won't work and all that. But if you'll continue, uh, my dad used to say, if at first you don't suck a seed, just suck and suck and suck until you do suck a seed, you know, <laughs> I, you know, right. And, and, and just, and just, just, um, just be persistent. And uh, that's, that's probably that's probably the best thing that I can tell a young person uh, be, because if you stay with it, you will learn, you know, stay malleable, stay, stay, you know, stay open to new ideas, but mainly you just have to outlast, you have to outlast the discouragement and, and eventually you'll get, you'll get really good at it. No, good stuff. Not, not discouragement. You'll get good at farming. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I assume that. <laughs> uh, that that would be quite a rubbish takeaway if you meant the discouragement side of it. I like the sucker seed one, uh, and and what I take from that is, uh, you know, maybe you learned you couldn't suck a seed, so what you did was you started to get your pigs to do it. Was what you've done. So uh, yeah, right. it's um, <laughs> no. Listen, it's been it's been great to chat, Joel. I appreciate you coming on. Um, I'm sure you're a very busy man. Um, for those of you listening, we had a bit of confusion. Joel came on an hour early than I thought because we had some time zone confusion, which I will hold my hands up and accept the blame for. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a great chat. I could have sat and talked for two hours about different things, but um, conscious, conscious of time. And uh, for those of you listening, I hope you've enjoyed. I'm sure you have. If you have any questions, just get in touch with me. As always, make sure to follow Rural to Kitchen on Facebook and Instagram. And just because we've got Joel on, check out Polyface Farm. 
um, on on all the relevant socials as well. Uh, now, very much smaller over here than Joel is, so he might not even notice people coming over. And for those of you that listen to the podcast weekly, uh, next week is podcast number 43, well on our way to half of a century of podcasts now. Um, next week is with Zena of Welsh Cottage by Zena. Zena looks at sort of what we can do with relatively wasty products in this country now wool is a great product but it costs nothing she looks at what we can do with wool she's got bees she's got everything and i really look forward to chatting joel you got anything else you'd like to say no just uh thank you very much for joining you and i hope i hope with uh travel restrictions hopefully easing that i'll be able to get back over to one of my favorite places uh, over there, you know, in the in the future, uh, uh, just I love all the the Irish, Scottish, British uh, folks, and it's and it's always delightful to to be on that big island. Well, tell you what, um, I am from a small island off of the uh, Scotland, so always welcome there. Um, it would be great to have you. I'm a lecturer as well. It'd be great to have you in chatting to students, and maybe uh, to return the favour, I will. Uh, hopefully be in your neck of the woods at some point and pop over for a beer and some of that lovely pork. Uh, I so, hope you, I hope you will. Yeah. <laughs> hope you will. Grant, great well, to thank, chat. Thank you. So, thank you so much. Take care. No, no, thank you. And we'll see you all in a week's time. Well, that's it. Another R2 cast finished. Another agricultural mind opened up. And I would just like to say that getting these guests on board, it uh, does take time. Uh, and it always has done, but I've now went weekly, and with that comes even more time required. And I would just like to finally thank once more the Scottish Farmer for sponsoring the show and making that much more possible. Please be sure to get in touch if you've any ideas of people you'd like to see on the podcast, or maybe ideas you have for me presenting better, because I definitely do require that. See you in the next one.